welcome to Bayer Cropcast with your technical field representatives from right around Australia. In this Cropcast, we'll give you a quick wrap-up of the season at hand and things to look out for, including events coming up around you and everything related to agronomy and growing healthy crops. We are passionate about the future of agriculture and crop protection, and we look forward to having you join us on Bayer Cropcasts. Welcome to Bayer Cropcast. This is episode 14. I'm Craig White, market development agronomist with Bayer Australia, and joining me today is my great colleague here in Western Australia, Matt Willis. How are you today, mate? Good, thanks, Whitey. Glad to be here again. I've uh, heard you on the on the Hortcast just in the last few episodes, and uh, I know you had an episode with the boys over east with the previous uh, Cropcast uh, in the winter as well. Yeah, that's right. No, it's been going really well. A few crop casts have been out. We're up to episode 14, as I said, but uh, also during this year, 2020, which has been a really odd one with uh, COVID and all that, Matt, we've uh, introduced the Bayer Hortcast. So we're up to episode four, actually, of that one, and we'll produce another one of those before the end of the year. But let's get back onto some broadacre topics in this particular podcast. And, you know, I've been winding... Uh, into the end of the year, I suppose, Matt, doing a lot of panical counts and final assessments on all our trial work and what have you. So starting to really see the differences between a lot of the treatments and the products that we've been testing during the 2020 season. And we've got some really great information out of those and we'll be presenting that to advisors late this year and early next year. Um, But we can just touch on a few points and I suppose first to ask you, how did uh, your pre-emergent and post-emergent trials sort of come out um, any high-level messages that you can give listeners right now from what you've seen? Oh, as you said, uh, panical counts, which I've uh, thankfully completed for the season now. <laughs> I've always put the greatest emphasis on on panical counts as the greatest indicator of weed control because uh, we, you know we, we do early assessments throughout the year, as you know. We go in there sort of two to four weeks after application and do a weed rating and same again a couple of months later and another one a month or so after that. But the panical counts, at the end of the day, what we're trying to achieve uh, with, with weed control is to prevent seed set for weeds for the following year and the, and the future going forward. And uh, panical counts are the, the greatest way to, to determine the success of your uh, herbicide application. Um, some some products uh, look very good early on and let go due to a lack of residual, um, and you have late germinators come through later cohorts of, of grass and broadleaf weeds, um, and you, you don't uh, pick up on that uh, with those early uh, assessments. So yeah, going through that and seeing how well uh, Sakura and uh, Matino Complete have done this season for control of, uh, in Sakura's case, grasses and Matino's case, grasses and broadleaves. Seeing how 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 strong and how long that residual control is um, compared to some of the other products in the in the trials. Yeah, that's right, Matt. And look, Sakura that you mentioned there has been around about a decade now. So that's, you know, a decade of proven residual weed control against those grass weeds like ryegrass, barleygrass, you know, brome, wild oats, uh, silvergrass. What else? Toadrush as well there, Matt. And I think phalaris mm. as well in parts of Australia. So, you know, well, well proven. And, you know, one of the things that's really great about Sakura is it proves itself year after year and is a really strong contender. But we are equally interested in developing now Matino Complete that you talked about. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. Um, just want to quickly shout out that with Sakura, um, coming back by popular demand, we've got the 100 hectare pack coming back. So 100 hectare treatable uh, yeah, can be treated with one um, one pack. That's been uh, something the market's um, really liked a couple of years ago, and it's coming back for you know, the next cropping season. So you can get that now, as well as that very convenient five kilo pack that a lot of people would know. And then this year, we launched Sakura Flow, the liquid formulation, and that is available in a 20 litre pack. Uh, treats quite a few hectares there, but also a 50 hectare pack. So that'll be nice and convenient mm-hmm. for a number of people. That one's going to be really popular, I reckon, Matt. So, yeah, people should talk to their local Bayer Territory business manager or their local agent and ask about those pack sizes that um, just makes it quite flexible to get Sakura into your program. Mm-hmm. And the important thing is to know the liquid and the granule, they work exactly the same. It's just that some people prefer liquid, some people prefer a granule. It just gives it the choice. And then with the pack size as well, that uh, suits your system and potentially your boom spray size as well. Just to keep things easy um, at the start of next year when you're under the pump, um, putting your crop in. 
Yep, absolutely, that's right. And you know, go back a couple of crop casts ago, and we talked a lot on mixing orders and things like that. So the liquid formulation is different to the granule; it's still secure, and as you said, it performs in terms of weed control and out in the field the same way. But you just do need to be mindful that you do have different formulations there. So read the label and adhere to your mixing order because you'll get the best results out of it if you do it properly. Exactly, and, and, and the performance, we know it's great. And as I said earlier, the, in, in the trials, Sakura once again this year uh, was superb. It was uh, of the available products, it was the best one there easily once again. Um, so, yeah, that reliability performance, um, can't complain about that, eh, Whitey? Not at all, mate, and I think we've had a real focus on that again and advisors that have come through our Matino Complete trials or trials focusing on that new one we're developing, which we'll talk about now, I've really seen how strong Sakura is as you know as an option there. And the beauty of Matino Complete as we bring that through is it will offer grass and broadleaf weed control in the mm. one product. And yeah, bring a new or you know three active ingredients together with one of those being unique to or brand new to Australia. So exciting times ahead. And I think we'll do a, a separate podcast just about Matino Complete and what it's offering. But we'll have to wait to the twenty twenty two season for that one, Matt. We're still developing it and mm. currently it's not registered, but an uh, application has been made for the registration of the Matino Complete product. So we're looking forward to that, and a lot more work will go on in 2021 to bring that through as a really good option for grass and broadleaf weed control in wheat and barley crops. And I expect it'll be in a lot of work next year for all the growers and advisors across Australia to get their, their eyes across and they can see it because, yeah, as you said, 2022, and when you think about it, it's only 12 months away from making decisions over that season. So uh, over the next 12 months to be able to give you guys the the tools, the information you need to see this product in the field, in your patch, and see whether it's relevant for you. So when you're making decisions in 12 months' time, you've got that information uh, with you. That's right. And look, you know, this can be used, Matino Complete, uh, at the sowing time, so incorporated by sowing, which is how the pre-emergence are used. But excitingly too, we can apply this product, Matino Complete, early post-emergent and get that broad spectrum grass and broadleaf control. So, yep, uh, people that have seen it really liking that um, approach as well. So, Certainly, and in, in the trials that I've had, that's been the, the standard, like the key, yep. probably the, the big differential because obviously with any pre-emergent product, you're only controlling where the product is and that's generally in the inter-row and then relying on rainfall events, uh, moisture, uh, solubility of the product to move it down the furrow walls into the furrow, whereas a post-emergent product, is particularly if you get on early enough whilst the weeds are still small, um, or in the case of Matino, who completes uh, performance, even when the weeds aren't even out of the ground yet, um, you're getting that complete uh, coverage distribution across the soil profiles, the inter-row, the furrow wall, and in the furrow itself. So getting much higher levels of control as you could possibly get for any IBS product. Yeah, and they are fun plots to do panicle counts on those ones, Matt, with the Matino complete plots, hey? Mm, oh, yeah. <laughs> I've said this story before. This was back when we were talking about Truflex uh, canola a, a few crop calves ago uh, last year but when we were doing the panicle counts the matino complete this year once again i had my slightly unwilling volunteers with me um in some cases bayer employees in other cases uh, some friendly agronomists who owed me a favor and coming out doing some panicle counts in these plots and obviously the worst one you, you really don't want to do is the untreated where there's no no herbicide present because that's got the maximum number of panicles per square meter and you generally spend a bit of time doing counting those yeah, when you got to the Matino Complete ones, particularly the um, post-emergent ones uh, this season, you'd be counting one, two, in, in some cases zero panicles uh, in your quadrant. And it's, it's yeah, much quicker and much less pollen to, to breathe in if you suffer from a, a little bit of uh, hay fever like I do as well. So, uh, yeah. Very much enjoyed those plots, Whitey. Yeah, uh, they've been very good and it's yeah, it's great to pull them apart. And that's what we'll be sharing with the advisor groups um, you know, later this year and early next year, really how to understand where this fits. So we'll come back to uh, Matino Complete in future podcasts, no doubt. But remember, you've got Sakura available, plenty of flexible options there. Um, and, you know, if you are using Sakura, there is also, you know, post-emergent in the broadleaf weed control space, uh, products like Velocity and Precept. And I know, mate, you just want to touch a little bit on very briefly in this podcast about the, um, you know, shift in sensitivity of HPBD herb type herbicides and, you know, just where that might be going and what we might be able to talk about in a few podcast time. 
Yeah, certainly. Um, and it's been one we've discussed in previous episodes, and it's one that the industry has been discussing themselves over the last few months as results come from weed resistance tests across the, the nation. And, and in most cases so far, it all it only really appears to be low-level shifts in sensitivity that are getting picked up in the laboratory as opposed to field failures. Um, but they are warning signs. But from the work we've done, both ourselves in the field and with um, industry bodies at universities and such, uh, finding the best level of control is going with a post-emergent product whilst the weeds are small. Because similar to that, what I was saying about Matena Complete post-emergent, in that you're getting that complete coverage, complete distribution across the soil profile. So every weed that's coming up is getting exposure. There's no weeds coming up in the furrow that haven't been able to take it up like in an IBS product. Um, but you're getting on there post-emergent. And in the case of uh, Velocity, being in a co-formulated product with uh, with confirmed synergism, so you've got your HBPD paracelfatol, you've got your uh, bromoxynil in there as well, and together the old one plus one equals more than two story comes about, and they're working together and taking down these weeds uh, as effectively as possible by getting them on there small. So we know from Velocity, you can apply it from two-leaf crop stage onwards, and we're seeing the best level of control at that point. Yep, absolutely. Good message there, Matt, and we'll explore that a lot more in a future podcast. So we might now just switch across to having listened. I back in winter actually, I recorded um, a segment which we'll we'll listen to now with Dr. Peter Batsalis and Dr. John Broster, who uh, run a couple of the commercial herbicide resistance testing programs in Australia. Um, that was really interesting. You mentioned how important it is to know what you're dealing with there, Matt, um, and these services are really, really, um, you know, pivotal in making decisions for the following season. So we'll take a listen to that now about you know, how you go about herbicide resistance testing. It's a good time to do it right now during, uh, you know, the lead-in to harvest. In some places, I'm sure they're already harvesting, but um, in others, they're not yet sort of started. Um, have a listen to the this, and we'll come back in just a moment. So Dr. Peter Batsalis and John Broster giving us um, some good insights into weed resistance testing right now. Well, herbicide resistance testing, testing, you know, what's going on with the weeds out in the paddock is really, really important. And we know all too well um, just, just how critical it is to know what's going on in the paddock. I think um, in ter- certainly in terms of herbicide resistance testing in Australia, there is a reasonable amount done, but there could be a lot more. So you really know what you're looking for. And I'm joined on the line today by two of the great testing services in Australia, uh, Dr. Peter Batsalis from Plant Science Consulting and Dr. John Broster from the Charles Sturt University Graham Centre over in Wagga. How are you guys going today? Not too bad, cold. Yeah, bit cold. A bit cold in Adelaide, yep, yep, certainly, yep. yep. And what about over in Wagga, John? What's it like over there today? Um, nice, warm winter's day with showers forecast for the rest of the week. Lovely. Oh, it sounds really good for crop growing. That's really good. So uh, um, we'll take it. But guys, look, what was really important, and I really thank you for coming on to the Bayer Cropcast, is you know, herbicide resistance in Australia, it's so important, as I said, you know, there's a, a couple of types of tests we can do called the quick test and the seed testing, um, pretty much weeds that, you know, um, produce a seed, you can test for them um, with your processes and you've been doing this a long time now. So we wanted to touch on today why it's so important, you know, what you actually do um, when you do the test, both quick tests um, during the season and then around harvest time with the seeds, um, obviously years of methodology and development that you guys have put in and um you know how important or you know how do the results come out of that and just remind listeners of of what um, they actually need to do to actually do it and then we'll move on to some of the results that were found from 2019 2020 because you're sort of just wrapping up that uh last year's winter program at the moment so um perhaps pete i'll just go over to you first what um yeah what sort of reminders would you like to to give to listeners about how to go about testing and just general general statements about that Yeah, I think if people are interested in conducting um, pre-emergent herbicide testing, then seed testing is the way to go um, because we can accurately uh, detect for resistance that way. Uh, testing Seed testing takes about 12 weeks because at least, and that's when we get good quality seed because there is this thing called dormancy and things like ryegrass just doesn't germinate and until it's ready to germinate. We can apply a few tricks to it to help it along, but... At the end of the day, it still takes a while for it to break dormancy and, and get good results, especially with uh, pre-emergent herbicides. So 
and because they're weeds, they don't always grow. They have dormancy constraints. And the thing that we sometimes get is very poor quality seed, whether it's usually if it's picked a bit too early. And that makes our job really difficult because it just doesn't, um, just won't germinate. And we may have to do four or five different attempts to satisfy all the herbicide requests from the growers. So, is that because it's um, like not mature properly or not yeah, big enough? That's right, yeah, that's right. That's right. Still immature. And, and so that's the biggest constraint. If seed's been um, crop topped with um, a knockdown, a, a, um, a non selective herbicide. Um, so let us know that. If they, we can still do testing if it's not 100% effective, but in those cases we will need more seed to try and um, get the ones that haven't been controlled with the um, the non-selective herbicide to germinate. But yeah, for us to get those results back as quickly as possible, the seed has to be good quality and and just basically just prior to harvest. That's when you collect the seed, um, not not two weeks and after, just after flowering. Yep. And I know um, we've got a little video on the Bayer website that um, shows you, Pete, how to you know go about the sampling and what happens in the process. And, John, I know you, um, you know, we've had plenty of discussions over the years about uh, how to go with it and some interesting methods that you've uh, got as well. So I'm sure you'd have a few comments to add to what Peter's just talked about there in terms of getting the best sample and, you know, making it representative. Yeah, so, um, yeah, Pete was right. There's, the later you can collect it, the better before harvest. And just how where you collect it from is the important factor to remember that because the results you get are only applicable to the area you've collected the seed from. So if you collect it from one corner of a paddock, it's only applicable to that corner. It could be different in the rest of the paddock. So you have to take that into consideration when you're doing your sampling. It's not just... When you collect the seed, which is important for us to get it to germinate in sufficient numbers so we get accurate results, but where you collect it as well is how you can then relate your results to what you have occurring in your paddock. Yeah, and what would you guys say about, um, you know, collecting from a chaff dump, for example, you know, the weed fraction that perhaps comes out of that, what would that What would that mean? So that'll be more representative from the entire paddock because we won't know where it's come from. So that'll give you a more of a broader representation of, yep. of the, the the whole paddock. Yeah, it'll give you a more representative part of the paddock. You've got to remember there's probably two reasons why people will test. One is they want to know what the entire paddock is. So that's the chaff dump or um, other things like that are perfect for that. The others, they may be interested in a little outbreak that's starting to occur in, a, in an area and then you might be better off targeting that, that area and sampling that area and saying, what's this area like? Is this a concern before the rest of the paddock? Yep. So you've really got to remember, what am I looking for from my results? What am I wanting to find out? And targeting your sampling to best represent the results you're after or the question you're wanting to ask. Yep, so it's really important knowing the question. So there's some survivors throughout. Uh, you may have to get in there before the harvester goes through and ensure you get the seed and uh, pick that up. Um, but if it's after the fact and it's a chaff dump, then it's a more general picture. Is that what you're really saying? Yeah. And, and there are there are times where even if you've harvested, um, for example, some weeds like ryegrass may have prostrate-growing um, branches um, stems and so there's, there's, there can be an intact seed heads on the ground and so you can collect it straight after harvest as well so yep. because the harvest has gone through it doesn't mean they, it's all over I can't test this year because when we're doing our random weed surveys often, not often but if a paddock's been harvested and we go into it if the ryegrass was there we still find mm-hmm. ryegrass there yep. um, for other species such as um, the ones that shed easy like barley grass or brome or wild oats if the seed's on the ground, just grab some handfuls, even with some dirt, and stick it in a paper bag and send it to us. That's fine. Yep. Um, if there's evidence of a weed there, then the soil around it will contain seeds, so we can extract the seeds from the soil and um, test it that way. Yeah, and I've seen a very interesting example of that with um, problematic sort of fumitory 
species over here in the west, Peter, that um, we got, you know, the agronomist had sent um, some soil directly from where he knows there were some plants and you got a fantastic germination in the glasshouse yep. and we're able to, uh, to test those. So that was a really good example. So uh, just plenty of ways to do it. And I suppose just touch on the quick test, Peter. How is that different? Um, I mean, from my side, I know it's about green plants, but what would you do with the quick testing and why would you do that? Yeah, our quick testing can can be there if you've we've got a few samples this so far this season where a knockdown herbicide has been applied and there there have been survivors mm-hmm. and growers have wished to confirm whether it's been resistant or not and so in most cases resistance is detected but in a few cases um, plants just die yep. so it's to confirm a herbicide failure but also to give a bit of an indication if you've missed the C test. Um, season uh, to give a bit of an indication of what you can expect in crop this year um, with the, the plants that have germinated in the paddock at that point in time or whether uh, we'll probably get a few more quick tests in a couple months time where uh, selective herbicides have gone in and there are survivors and growers want to test is it resistant or not usually things like clethodim really that'll be one of the main ones um, and in some cases, it's not actually resistance because some of these herbicides are a bit more um, sensitive to frost and harsh environmental conditions. And growers just want to know, was it was it my application or was it a stress thing or is it actually resistant? Yeah. Um, moving on, they also want to know that if there's a lot of resistance in the paddock, then it may be worth us either buying or if we have got a seed terminator or a seed destructor, um, to warrant putting it into that paddock so we can actually control those weeds um, and try and remove some of that resistance seed that's going to otherwise get into the seed bank again. Uh, so that's the important point, isn't it, that, that testing can help identify problems um, and you identify those and then as part of a whole package, I know, John, you were particularly talking to me about that before we came on to record, um, a little bit about it has to be considered as a whole package approach. Yeah, so... Um it's sort of every whereas before probably 10 15 years ago farmers would consider that if it, if they had survivors it was because they'd made an error or the conditions hadn't been right now they they often consider it as resistance and so testing gives you the opportunity to confirm that it's resistance and it's not um, some management or application issue but you've also got to consider that because we're sampling from a large area and we may only have 30 or 40% of the plants may be resistant, but we're not going to get 30 or 40% of the seeds in every sampling that we're doing um, um, every time. Yep. So we got to take our results and also consider the history of the paddock and other things going on. So it's one tool in making decisions. It's not a be-all and end-all. Yep, uh, very good advice there um, from both of you about uh, that being a whole part of a whole package and, and a whole system just like everything. And we know we've got the Weed Smart Big Six program and part of that is to know you know what your resistance status is, so really critical. And I just do want to mention that Bayer has a dedicated um, herbicide resistance website, which is mixitup.com.au, uh, and I'll put the notes uh, or the, the link for that in the show notes as well as links to Peter and John's testing services as well. So that's really good. Yeah, so now we've heard a lot about, you know, why it's so important to get a good sample and how to go about that sampling. And again, there's links through to Peter and John's testing services, which also have great information. And I'm sure you chaps are always willing to talk to people if they've got a specific idea in mind or whatever, but it is a reasonably easy process. You just have to get out there and, you know, fill in a little bit of paperwork, not too arduous, and get them through. But remember, listeners, there is someone at the other end that is receiving these, has a wealth of knowledge in you know, weed management and whatever, so um, really worth doing. But you guys would be well and truly available, no doubt, to anyone that's uh, submitting a sample to your testing services. Yep, yep that's right. Very good. So, yeah, it's not a uh, not a black hole that the seeds are going into is what I'm trying to say there, or the plants. Now, turning our attention over to, you know, what happened over 2019, so perhaps quick testing green plants last winter, 
uh, cropping season and then sort of over the summertime or towards harvest with those seeds. Um, Peter, could you just give a – I'll start again, I think, with you there just to give a, a wrap-up of what you found and then, John, um, we'll go across and see what you found more in that eastern and northern parts of Australia just as a general overview of uh, weeds and particularly interested, I suppose, if anything new or alarming has, uh, has shown up um, in your testing yep. system. Yep. Yep. Yep, sure. Um, just, I guess the, the two major things are we are seeing an increase in glyphosate resistance in lolium in ryegrass, annual ryegrass. So, and it's usually quite low levels of resistance just starting. And, and hopefully with those results, growers are often you know, really taking care and trying to do something like maybe come down with another mode of action herbicide like a paraquat if they can to take out the survivors. So increasing glyphosate resistance is occurring and we're detecting it with a quick test. We're detecting it with a seed test over summer as well. Um, the other the other one is um, been clethodim resistance and we are starting to see survival with the higher and higher rates of clethodim. But on the whole, usually if we are detecting resistance to say 500 mils of clethodim, where growers have have also chosen clethodim 500 mils of the old EC240 product plus factor 180 grams, that is working very well because we're bombing it with an extra load of a dim. Mm-hmm. And so that combination is, is in most cases controlling those weeds. But there are there is the odd occasion where even that doesn't control all of, all of the ryegrass. Remembering that all of our tests are done under perfect conditions as well. So the plants aren't stressed. They're sprayed at that sort of the one to two tiller stage, so very early on. And um, if they're surviving in our system, then it means that in the paddock where conditions aren't often as as um, lovely as they are in our conditions, then the resistance is significantly more. So it's, it's those two things that are really happening. Uh, most of the testing, this, the seed testing this year was from SA and Victoria, um, that's where the the bulk of the samples came from this year, and um, yeah, in that one we started we we have detected the odd group J and group K resistant ryegrass, but again, it's very low. It's nowhere near. You wouldn't use any term that says it's increasing at a rapid rate, but there is the odd case that's occurring, and and it is it is important for the growers to know that. But on the whole, even the group Js and Ks are still working very well. Um, one of the the recent things that I found is I did get some wild radish from uh, WA, from the Dongara and Eniaba regions. I hope I've said them correctly. Eniaba, sorry, Pete. Um, Eniaba. Yeah, Eniaba, yep. yeah, sorry. Yep. <laughs> and um, yeah, sprayed them with a whole heap of herbicides, including uh, triazines and metribuzin as well, and detected extremely high levels of resistance to both atrazine and also to metribuzin. So some of these samples. They look. They didn't look any different to the untreated. So, yeah, that's been quite concerning. Where we've got a lot of FBI resistance, as I call it, groups F, B, and I. If we put a C in there as well, resistance to group C, it's starting to really reduce the modes of action available to control wild radish. So that, they're the the main ones um, there. Um, just one other thing that. You know, John would agree with it as well, and that is growth stage. So we've treated wild radish, for example, at the two-leaf, three-leaf stage resistant stuff, and we have basically killed it with general herbicides. When we let them get to the four to five to six-leaf stage, those plants are bulletproof mm. and just power through herbicides. So even though you've got resistance, it's not an absolute thing. You go in early, you can kill resistant plants, you let them for another two or three weeks and they're untouchable. Yeah, really strong so message that we often yeah, talk about as herbicide really, companies. Yeah, get in early yeah. for sure. Yep. Yeah, it really stood out this year in our testing, really did. Yep, sure. Yeah, and I try to get my radish just larger than the top of a Coke can sort of size to spray them. 
Yep. Yep. Uh, interesting because, you know, often we get asked, you know, why do we have to, why can't we wait for the weeds and get everything up out of the ground? And, you know, and often, you know, we're, we're really always talking about, you know, coming in from the two leaf crop stage as early as possible, getting those small weeds out of the way. And a lot of people sometimes yep. say, why do I need to go so early? Uh, can't I wait a bit? Um, or use something else that's a bit cheaper to start with and then come back later if I need to. But, you know, um, what you've just said there really perhaps backs that up as well as a whole other range of factors. And uh, I often talk about that um, spray early and get them while they're young. And, yeah, that's really interesting what you've just given. So uh, heed the message. Um, Some really good research that I always refer to as well, Peter, back in the 1990s. And, John, I'm sure you were... We were all around back then, probably around uh, Adelaide somewhere, Roseworthy or whatever, yeah. and um, the important thing was some of that, that work really showed the yield benefits coming from getting those weeds out of the way, whereas the longer you wait, the less benefit you get from that herbicide investment. So get onto them early uh, for that reason, but also now you're saying, yeah, the resistance um, factor is a really important one. Oh, just one one more thing. I just uh, okay. saw in my notes, and that is that we we did we have detected two samples of paraquat resistant ryegrass from Broadacre in southern Victoria as well. Mm-hmm. So we have had paraquat resistance detected um, in southeast of South Australia, but that's been from sort of um, white clover seed crops. So a lot yep. of paraquat use there, but. This is from regular broadacre paddocks, mm-hmm. and we have detected two samples. So that's a little bit concerning that if we push the system with anything, it, it will fight back, and that's what that is sort of saying to us. Yep. Again, the uh, Weed Smart Big Six certainly shows you how to go about, you know, um, optimising everything and using every tool you have, chemical, non-chemical, cultural, everything you can. As as you just said, if you push the system in one way all the time, then it's going to adapt to it. Um, Mother Nature, as we know, always has the last say, as we've experienced here recently in uh, WA with some savage storms going through recently. Mother Nature still beats us, but... uh, Yep, we can recover and uh, go on with that. But that's good, Peter. Yep. Interesting um, interesting to hear some of those overviews, and I'm sure you're happy to talk to anyone if they uh, make contact after this podcast about what you found. And uh, it's also your data and um, John's data. We, um, we, we can put that into a little mapping tool that Bayer has available at that Mix It Up website as well. Um, that's really interesting, and that just sort of gives you a starting point or a really interesting point about how to go about, um, you know, where to target your sampling and things like that. But you guys will be, you know, have done lots of surveys and things like that. But, Peter, thanks very much for that part. Um, John, yeah, have you no got worries. any got anything to add um, from the more eastern and northern side of um, Australia? Well, my samples, I just had a quick look, came mostly from New South Wales and Western Australia. Okay, yep. Um what we've got is about a quarter of the ryegrass samples had greater than 10% survival to Roundup, mm-hmm. with about two-thirds of them over the 20% so um, resistant. The other one that's interesting and the, one of the reasons why somebody could choose to resistance test is the variation you get amongst the dims. Um, so we tested mainly select, achieve and factor this year. We've got 100% of the population were resistant to factor to achieve. Sorry, it's about 36% to factor and 15% to select. So you get that various. So if it's resistant to achieve, that doesn't necessarily mean it's resistant to clethodium and factor. Mm-hmm. So you do have some options, and that's one of the advantages of resistance testing. You can test those different herbicides within a group and see what options you have within that herbicide group still because with some groups, maybe the FOPs with ryegrass, once it's resistant to one of them, it's resistant to them all. But there are other groups where that doesn't apply. And so that's probably it. Um, Just in a quick nutshell of what we've found, my annual report that will go on the Graham Centre website is in the process of being written at the moment. It might be delayed a bit. I've got a couple of Lake Wild Oats samples that um, I might put through. But, yeah, that summarises this year and compares it the last two or three seasons. That's really interesting too, and I'll put um, <clears throat> put a link, as I said, to each of your uh, respective websites and those reports. But if you're a regular or, you know, on your mailing list, I'm sure you'll get that report sent through, yes. which is always interesting reading from both of you. 
So we've covered a lot there um, in terms of, you know, how to test, why it's so important to get a representative sample, but also, you know, some of the results. So, um, John, just in closing, you know, from the 2019-2020 program, what would your sort of closing statement on herbicide resistance testing be and perhaps a message for uh, season coming coming ahead of us? Um, my message would be that testing gives you, lets you know what options are still available. So whether you look at it as resistance testing or looking for your susceptible options, like as I said, there's differences within the dims for the ryegrass. There might be differences within wild oats between their resistance status with the fops. And wild radish may have differences in the group Cs and others. So looking for your options so that if you've had a failure to one subgroup of a herbicide group, don't throw away all that group. Test see what options are available, and that may mean that you have a longer... You can still use those herbicide groups without putting pressure on new and more expensive groups. Fantastic, yep, and we like that message too, to keep keep those groups alive, and then you can mix it all up and rotate and have plenty of options available rather than burning one out and uh, not having it available. It makes it very expensive, and vice versa, I think, too. You know, the newer chemistry relies on the old chemistry still being effective to keep it uh, as a valid tool for a, for a long time. So that's good advice, John. And Peter, what would your closing statement be on that? Yep, so if the year is 2020. It's not 1990 where we were <laughs> stuck with um, no new modes of action and resistance was increasing. At the moment, resistance is not always increasing, so that's a good thing, and that is because the industry has really... Uh, come on board and we have available a lot of new mode of action herbicides, some registered, some will be registered early next year and so rotating with other modes of action just helps the system work really well. And for anything that sort of sneaks away, there are there are options to late seed, seed set control and also um, seed capture. So things like the seed terminator, and the weed destructors are just critical to just take off that, re- remove those few potential weeds that are mouldy resistant and they're just going to cause headaches for the future just to get it out of the system and, and keep the whole the whole farming process, weed control, working um, as effectively as it is these days. Yeah, uh, great advice um, for that. And certainly, you know, the Weed Smart that I keep referring to has that big six program, including, you know, rotating your crops and pastures, double knocking to preserve the glyphosate, which we know is so important, uh, mixing and rotating herbicides, as you've both said, how important that is, stopping the weed set, crop competition, um, harvest weed seed control is really critical, as you just said there, Peter. Um, for that and John you mentioned you know it's a whole part of a system so the weed smart big six but you need to know where your weeds are at as well so this is why herbicide resistance testing is so important and uh, as I said the links to your testing services will be in the podcast notes for listeners to get in touch with and remember there's always someone at the end of the line that can uh, only be too happy to speak to you about your particular issue if it's a little bit more complex than a than a straightforward test which is uh, something I'm sure you guys will will help out with so that's really good 2020 has been a challenging year Peter you said it's 2020 and uh, some days you wake up and think hmm the year's been uh, quite strange and of course COVID-19 put a uh, stop to a number of conferences and you know um, professional meetings and things around the place and I know the Australian Weeds Conference which was due to be held in Adelaide sort of been postponed as well off to a future time but I know you and John sort of working on a um, on a little joint, <clears throat> you were going to present a little joint uh, project there. Do you just want to talk about what that might be and just a, a one-line summary of what that was? Yeah, sure. I was going to talk about the ryegrass surveys that have been conducted across um, southern Australia, so SA, Vic, New South Wales and, and Tasmania. And yeah, basically just to compare and contrast uh, the results we get from the surveys to the results that we get from the the um, resistance testing and just to summarise what we find is that we get very similar levels of um, resistance to um, all the herbicides apart from two and that is uh, clethodim and glyphosate. We get much lower levels of resistance identified in the weed surveys, in the random weed surveys, the GRDC funded random weed surveys than we do in, in the resistance testing and we go th- we'll be presenting a few reasons why 
um, and also with glyphosate as well. So we'll just be discussing a few, you know, reasons why why that's the case. But for most other um, modes of action, we get very similar levels of uh, resistance between randomly collected samples that we do through the GRDC random lead survey and also the seeds and plants that the farmers send us for resistance testing. Uh, really interesting and really important to know that. And again, listeners, that's why it's so important to have the uh, the two chaps you're listening to here are, are available around if there are specific questions on that. And John, you were involved in that as well, the AWC, and still yep, will be I when was, it comes up. Yep, I was looking at the wild oats. I was doing the wild oats next. Wild oats, the, the surveys may give a little bit lower resistance levels, but also we're looking at the both for the wild oats and the ryegrass, the relationships between herbicide groups. So if it's resistant to a FOPS, what are the likelihoods of it being resistant to other herbicides Mm -hmm. and all those things? And they are relatively similar for all species between the groups. So it's not just how much resistance is out there, but how how the resistances relate to each other. If If you've developed resistance to one, we know the FOPS, are probably going to be first, along with the group Bs in ryegrass. How do they relate to those other herbicides? Because once you've lost them, you start putting pressure on others. How does that all interrelate to each other? So that's what we were looking at with those two papers. Oh, terrific. And uh, they will be presented when that uh, AWC conference goes ahead, once it's clear you know, what COVID's doing and what we're allowed to do. So it'll be really interesting to, to hear you present those. So thank you very much, Dr John Broster and Dr Peter Batsalis. I really appreciate you coming onto the Bayer Cropcast, giving listeners a fantastic insight into weed resistance testing, also how important it is to sample correctly some of those results, but importantly, how this fits as part of the Weed Smart Big Six and overall program. So thanks very much, chaps, and uh, we'll catch up with you again down the track. No worries, Craig. Well, it was really good listening to Dr. Peter Batsalis and Dr. John Broster there about what they've found in their resistance testing over the last 12 months. And, you know, there's plenty of resources and places you can get that information. There were some really good insights there because knowing what you stand, you know, what you're dealing with is really, really important as you go through into the new season. So if you want any more information about that, it'll be in the show notes, podcast notes, but you can also talk to your friendly Bayer advisor or local territory business manager and get more information. So yeah, that was pretty useful, Matt. Mm, Definitely. Okay. So turning our attention now to a different topic, Matt, um, you know, with new plantings and that that will be going on next season. Um, it's always good to review some sort of success of, you know, the current season that we've got at hand. And you'd like to just touch on what you've seen with Tag Team Inoculant from Bayer and just some of the attributes of what that's been and how that's performed during the 2020 season. Mm, yeah, yeah. So Tag Team is an inoculant that's commercially available uh, right now. Um, it's been around for a, for a few years and smaller scale, but certainly this year we've seen a lot more of it. And we've seen a lot of support from it and our distribution partners uh, for the coming season as well. And uh, I've spoken about in previous crop casts regarding its performance at the West Midlands Group um, trial. We had it back in 2019. And again, this year, um, 2020, we've had some more trials. I had a trial up with the Northern Agri Group up at Inu, and I had another trial with the Mingyu Irwin Group um, at Yandanuka this time. And in both cases, they were up against an uninoculated and, and a standard, and, and it performed really well in, in both uh, cases. And as I've said when I've been describing uh, Tag Team, its biggest point of differential is its handling. It's um, mm. getting to apply it as a dry peat instead of a, a liquid slurry. Um, growers really find that appealing. Um, so they're not mucking around with liquid and slopping all over the place. They just pour it in or dial it into the, the hopper of their auger as they're filling up their five-in-one. Because it's a lovely coating on the grain. They're very happy with coverage and it, and it handles well. Uh, storage. Doesn't need to be refrigerated; just needs to be kept somewhere cool. So another advantage uh, over other products out there. Um, so yeah, the peat uh, tag team uh, getting a lot of support for it this year. So hopefully you've, um, you, you get to see it around your place. And, uh, <laughs> and I always have this discussion with guys who haven't used an inoculant for a while. It's one of those things that's actually quite easy to do a demo, just a demo on your farm uh, or, or a small scale trial. And you know, just get a bag. So one bag of, of tag team peat, peat treats one ton of grain. Um, just do, uh, if you've got two uh, tanks of your cedar in a paddock, just do one with, one without. You could do skipper oak, could do whatever, whatever. And uh, throughout the year, 
pick up a few plants, check out a few nodules, and then you've also got your harvest map at the end of the year. It's quite simple, um, but a very um, easy product to handle. Um, so hopefully get to see more of it in the coming years. Yeah, really good, Matt. And I think back earlier in this year, you talked quite extensively about differences of tag team to other inoculants and just survivability of the uh, mm. bacterium and what have you. So I think we might do that in a podcast in early 2021 as we approach yeah. the seeding period again. Mm, definitely. Very good. All right. Now, Matt, I've always got interesting facts from you. We always talk off air about uh, getting an interesting fact, and I'll just talk about an app that I like right at the end. But, yeah, it's something that um, was once around, was something, is actually no more. So what's this all about? Yeah, well, it's, my facts have been beginning. They, they Generally, when I run into someone in the paddock who listens to this, the facts are what they mention. So <laughs> I, I probably prefer them to be mentioning the other things I'm talking about, but the facts are the things that stick. And obviously, in the past, we've spoken about Farmers Union, Farmers Union Ice Coffee in South Australia, and then there was the Great Emu War um, earlier this year. Um, so that, what I wanted to talk about this time was the uh, principality of Hutt River in uh, Western Australia. So uh, I reckon there'd be a lot of West Australians, particularly those up around Geraldton, that we very much aware of this, but maybe some of those over east and some of those a bit further away from Geraldton may not or not and too much about it was the Principality of Hutt River. Now, what it was was a former micronation. So it uh, claimed to be a sovereign state um, and uh, seceded from Australia uh, in uh, on the 21st of April in 1970. So Leonard Casley was the, the bloke that did it. And what drove it, what, what led to this uh, uh, se- se- secession from Australia was production quotas. So in... Back in 1970, when it all began, uh, the Caisley Farm had over 4,000 hectares of wheat ready to harvest, and their quota only allowed for 40 hectares uh, to be sold. So they weren't too happy about that. That's uh, only about that's only one percent of their production. So they, after a bit of grizzling, they decided, um, uh, or Leonard decided that uh, his best course of action was to secede and then do what he wanted. Um, clearly, the uh, government of Australia didn't really agree with this, and it was never recognised by the Supreme Court of Australia. But uh, from then on, uh, for the up until this year, actually, um, it's been claimed to be a separate uh, nation to Australia. So it's been getting a lot of uh, notice from tourists over the years. Uh, they made a lot of money or supported their their venture um, by selling stamps, currency. They had their own currency. They had their own passports. Uh, and these passports were very well known internationally. They were, they were getting up at their peak up to 40,000 tourists a year come through the principality. Wow. Um, and so obviously then they spread across the world. Um, <laughs> and and it was noted by the EU, so the, the Council of the European Union in, in Europe, was that they, they acknowledged that these Hutt River passports existed and they had in, in some documents saying that it, they, are, they are a fantasy passport which their visa should not be attached to because I think they were finding that people were pulling them out at airports and uh, <laughs> yeah, it was uh, they were spreading far and wide. Um, and yeah, unfortunately, old Leonard he passed away um, last year, February 2019, age 91. Um, and he actually got a letter from the Queen a few years before that. So in 2016, he actually got a letter from Queen Elizabeth congratulating him on the 46th anniversary of the Principality of Hutt River in existence, which was quite nice of her to say. Wow. Um, but yeah, he, he died uh, last year and his, his son Graham took over as the new prince of Hutt River. But unfortunately, they had to close it down to tourists uh, early this year in January, potentially due to COVID. Um, and they officially dissolved the principality in on the 3rd of August this year. So it no longer exists. Hey. But yeah, the principality... And the thing that always gets me a chuckle is they actually declared war on Australia in 1977 for a few days as well. So... Uh, right. <laughs> Declared war on Australia, but it was a, a nice little fact. And I, I know plenty of people who live around Northampton. They, 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 they knew Leonard, and obviously know Graham. And it always gets a, a right smile from everyone when they talk about it. And yeah, known internationally around the world as a, a micronation uh, within Australia. Wow, really interesting. And look, if you're listening and you know even more about it and you've been there, then uh, get in touch with Matter Eye and, and let us know what you know about the Hutt River. Um, Hutt River Province there. So I know I've been up past it. I never went in and now I'm regretting that. You know, it's one of those life lessons, I reckon, that 
when you're around, you just should do things and go in and have a look. But really, 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 really interesting. Do you know, Matt? Did they have a hard border like Western Australia's got overall? Uh, I don't. I don't think they did. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not in their best interest, considering they're 100, near on 100 percent of their income was due to tourism. So I think a hard yes. border wouldn't have worked too well. That's but, right. Uh, no, that's yeah. another topic for another day. But uh, things <laughs> could be easing here in Western Australia a little. But you know, we should still be obviously vigilant um, as we know and you know um, our thoughts go out to everyone around Australia look after yourselves and you know yes we're coming out the right end of this COVID thing but uh, let's keep sensible and um, not revert back to where we were or where other parts of the world are going so yeah well good but yeah thanks Matt that's a really really interesting it was always a, a very unusual sort of thing the Hutt River province and yeah you've really shared some excellent ideas with us there I, I really enjoy it thanks very much mm, no worries buddy Oh, good. Now, mine is just a pretty much a, a boring app, but I just come across lately, um, obviously with weather, you know, we're looking, there's been a few storms around, unfortunately, over in the west, and I know in the east there's been some big rainfall events or whatever, and, you know, unfortunately hail, and that comes with those, but the Bureau of Meteorology have actually just recently updated their app, and it's really, really nice. I think when they first launched this, it was a little bit tricky to use and a, a bit hard to, to find things on it, but I just downloaded it again the other day um, on the recommendation of someone and um, I'm really impressed with how simple it is to get the you know the weather facts straight from the Bureau of Meteorology who are obviously the ones that make the forecasts and have the radars and whatever and yeah the front end of it looks really really nice now so the BOM or BOM app is one that uh, you should go and have a look at so that's my little Mm. one for this particular podcast Matt. Yep, I use that app as well, Whitey, and my wife does too. She checks it every morning before she goes to work to see whether she needs to bring her, her uh, umbrella or not. That's um, no, quite a good app, very easy to use. Yep, no, they've really improved it, so that's great. But look, listeners, thanks for joining us on episode 14 of Bayer Cropcast. It's uh, amazing to think we're at number 14, and I think we will do another one before the end of 2020 and there'll be plenty more to come in the new season. But, Matt, we always give out our Twitter handles so people can get in contact with us that way, and yours is? It's at Matt Willis Ag. At Matt Willis Ag, and mine is at photo by CW, at photo by CW. That's like photograph by CW, if that makes (laughs) sense, at photo by CW. So both pretty easy to remember. I'll put this in the podcast notes. And, Matt Willis, thank you very much for joining me today. I hope you uh, enjoyed listening there right through to Peter Batsalis and John Broster as well and got a little bit of out of it and listeners please get in touch with us anytime if you want more information about Bayer products and services and what we can offer yeah, Pleasure to be here Whitey, enjoy it every time Fantastic mate, we'll catch you next time Will do, see you mate Bye Thanks for joining us on Bayer Cropcast To get more information about anything you heard on today's episode phone one 800 804-479 to get in touch with us or visit the web at crop.bayer.com.au Thanks for listening.